Hello, Probable Causation listeners. Before we get started today, I want to encourage you to support the show on Patreon. For just $5 or $10 per month, you get access to exclusive bonus content, such as interviews with book authors, hosted by David Isle, and bonus segments with the scholars I interview on the show, talking about their background and life as a researcher. Plus, you'll know that your contributions help keep the show running, something for which the entire team is grateful. To subscribe, go to patreon.com slash causation. There's also a link on our website. Thank you in advance for your support. Now on to today's show. Hello and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Maya Rosen-Slater. Maya is an assistant professor of health research and policy at Stanford University School of Medicine. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. We are going to talk today about your work on the effects of violent assault, particularly intimate partner violence or domestic violence during pregnancy on birth outcomes and infant health. Uh, Before we dive into all of that, though, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure. Um, So I'm an economist with research in areas of health, public, and labor economics. Um, I'm particularly interested in understanding the choices and constraints faced by families with children and how various public policies and other factors can influence their well-being, especially within disadvantaged populations in the United States as well as in other developed countries. And a lot of my research has focused on identifying the impacts of adverse shocks as well as public policies. during the in utero and early childhood periods. And I think this work is important um, in part for understanding the persistence of inequality in America and identifying effective policies for diminishing this persistence and potentially improving the life chances of poor children. Um, By now, there's a wealth of evidence documenting the lasting impacts of the early life environment on individuals' outcomes throughout life and even into the next generation. So um, if poor children happen to be born born in environments where they're disproportionately exposed to adverse shocks in early life, and if those shocks themselves translate into worse outcomes for them in adulthood, then we can see how this can be a powerful mechanism um, for transmitting inequality from the fetal period to birth throughout childhood into adulthood and even into the next generation. And so this suggests that public policies that can break this cycle can be potentially highly effective um, and important. So I became interested in the topic of domestic violence, uh, specifically in its impact on the early life period, um, in part just because of the alarming prevalence um, of this type of violence, both around the world, but also here in the United States. And because just like many other adverse shocks that I've studied, poor and minority women are much more likely to experience this type of violence than their more advantaged counterparts. Um, So while there's been a lot of work documenting the early life impacts of various factors from like outside of the family environment, so things like air pollution or even say crime or violence in the local community or the neighborhood, um, we know much less about the influence of intra-family dynamics. um, And this is where I think this paper fits in. And I'm really honored to have fantastic co-authors, Janet Curry, sort of one of the leading experts and kind of one of the uh, founders of the research on early childhood health and well-being within economics. Um, and then Mike Mueller-Smith, who is um, an expert um, in the field of economics and crime. So we've teamed up uh, for this project. 
Yes, your paper is titled Violence While in Utero, The Impact of Assaults During Pregnancy on Birth Outcomes. Um, As you mentioned, it's co-authored with Janet Curry and Mike Mueller-Smith. So give us some more background on intimate partner violence, which I'll probably refer to as IPV, a little bit less of a mouthful there, (laughs) Um, and and violence during pregnancy in general. How prevalent are these types of assault? Right. So um, intimate partner violence, or IPV, as you say, is a crime that involves physical, sexual, or psychological harm by a current or former partner or spouse. And it's actually quite prevalent in our society. Um, so estimates suggest that in the U.S., about 32% of women experience physical intimate partner violence at some point during their lifetime. Um, another statistic is that IPV accounts for over one-seventh of all of violent crime in the United States today. Um, pregnancy and the postpartum period elevate the risk of experiencing domestic violence for women. So, for instance, studies indicated to indicate that the prevalence rate of physical or sexual abuse among pregnant and postpartum women ranges from 7 to 23 percent, um, with more recent studies reporting higher rates. Um, and since domestic violence is notoriously underreported, these numbers likely represent lower bounds on the true prevalence rate. Uh, one last disturbing statistic on this topic is that IPV-related homicide is actually one of the leading causes of death during pregnancy for women. So what mechanisms should we have in mind for why IPV during pregnancy might affect a child's outcomes? So I think there's at least, there's several mechanisms um, that are potentially relevant. So first there's the direct physical channel. So blunt trauma to the woman's abdomen could result in all kinds of um, complications issues. It could uh, result in placental abruption, for example, which could lead to early onset of labor. There could be other complications that are dangerous for both the woman and her unborn child, such as the rupture of the woman's uterus. Um, And then there are more indirect channels. So we know, for instance, from other work that stress during pregnancy can harm the fetus because the woman's body essentially releases too much cortisol that affects fetal development. Um, Experiencing violence and more generally just being in a violent relationship is probably a fairly stressful experience, and so that could be another important channel. Um, And then the woman might also respond to the stress of violence by taking up unhealthy behaviors, such as smoking or drinking alcohol um, during pregnancy, which in turn have their own independent negative negative effects on the baby's health. Um, A last uh, factor is that a controlling partner uh, might restrict where the woman can go, which could affect her ability to receive uh, various services, including prompt and regular prenatal care. Um, And this could, for instance, affect the likelihood that complications during pregnancy get detected or get detected early enough, um, and again, could lead to harm to the unborn child. So before this study, what had we known about the effects of IPV and violence during pregnancy? So I would say before this study, um, a lot of the literature on the topic had been in the field of public health. Um, So what these papers typically do is they take survey data on um, self-reported IPV prevalence um, and information on infant health and show that women who experience IPV during pregnancy tend to have worse birth outcomes than women without IPV exposure. So basically these studies compare women who do and do not report experiencing IPV during pregnancy 
And then they try to account for other differences between these two groups by including some sort of standard controls for things like education, race, age. Um, but, you know, as we know, it is quite hard to interpret these estimates as causal because exposure to IPV during pregnancy is by no means random. So it's nowhere near, right, like a randomized control trial, which we would use to um, estimate causal effects. Um, so for instance, poor minority and otherwise disadvantaged women are much more likely to experience IPV than their more advantaged counterparts. Um, and then these same groups are also more likely to experience poor infant health outcomes. So it's very hard to disentangle the causal effect of IPV from the influences of all of these other factors that are different between um, women who do and do not experience IPV during pregnancy, even in models that include controls for some basic observable characteristics. The issue here is that we really worry about unobservable characteristics that could also be different. Um, so I should say that one important innovation on this literature is a paper by Anna Iser uh, from 2011. So what she did is she used data on hospitalizations for assault during pregnancy, which are overwhelmingly due to intimate partner violence. And she identified the effects of this type of hospitalization on birth outcomes using an instrumental variable strategy. So her basic strategy was to essentially exploit geographic and temporal variation in the enforcement of laws against domestic violence in the state of California. And then she used that as an instrument um, for uh, being hospitalized for assault during pregnancy. And she found a fairly large negative effect of hospitalization on birth weight. Um, so we essentially wanted to build on this work but we use both different data as well as a different um, identification strategy. I should say there's also literature on exposure to neighborhood violence or even more global events that involve violence like wars and terrorism um, on infant health. So one major difference between that research and what we do in this paper is that those studies typically measure potential exposure rather than actual victimization. Um, and they usually focus on maternal stress during pregnancy as the key channel through which that potential exposure to violence can affect infant health. So our paper instead focuses on identifying the direct consequence of violent crime on the victims themselves, um, as well as their unborn children. All right, so let's talk more about the empirical challenges to studying this issue. Um, as you've alluded to, there are many. <laughs> so right. what did you see as the primary hurdles to measuring the causal effects of IPV during pregnancy uh, that you all had to overcome in order to do the study? Right. So as we just discussed, um, I think the lack of random vi variation in IPV exposure presents a major identification challenge, right? We can't run a randomized experiment in this setting, so it's really critical that we find a research design that is able to tell us something causal rather than just a correlation. Um, and then on top of that, there's a data limitation. So broadly speaking, um, we have a lot more detailed data on individuals who are, are accused of committing crimes than we do on individuals who are victims of crimes. And so this makes a lot of sense, of course, because we're concerned about protecting the confidentiality of victims. But it also presents a challenge for research. Um, so there's some survey data sets that do ask people about victimization, but these likely suffer from at least some measurement error and potentially bias um, because people tend to underreport crimes and especially domestic violence. And the types of people who self-report experiencing IPV are likely different from those who experience it and then choose not to report it. Um, so both of these issues, I think, pose some challenges for estimating the causal effects of exposure to IPV during pregnancy. Okay, so speaking of data, you use data from New York City to tackle this issue. 
Um, and it's really an amazing data set that you and your colleagues put together. So tell us about the data and, and I guess a little bit of a backstory on and how it all came to be. Um, and then, yeah, what the data looked like. Right. So I, first of all, I think that my co-author, Mike uh, Mueller-Smith, deserves a lot of the credit uh, for putting together the amazing data that we have at our disposal. I know um, you had him as a guest on your podcast before, mm-hmm. so listeners have already heard about the amazing things he's doing with CJARS, um, that the center, his Center for Linked Administrative Data that he's built. Um, so, I mean, Mike just really has a talent for um, <laughs> getting various government agencies to agree to share their data uh, with researchers, um, so so he was really critical in in, in getting us access to that data set, um, and we really benefited from that. And so what we did is we merged um, essentially three administrative data sets from New York City. Um, so first we have the universe of reported crimes from the New York Police Department, the NYPD, um, that concludes all criminal complaints reported between 2004 and 2012. Okay, so this is not arrests, this is not incarcerations, this is all uh, reports of criminal complaints. So basically anytime anybody calls the police, um, that's in our data. So these data, importantly for us, have exact longitude and latitude coordinates of where the criminal event allegedly occurred. And this is, of course, um, important for a linkage. Um, and our analysis focuses on all reported misdemeanor and felony assaults in New York City over this time period. Um, the second data set that we have is data on the universe of birth records from New York City um, over the same time period. So we got the restricted version of these data, um, which means that in addition to kind of standard birth outcomes and pregnancy information, we have information on mothers' full maiden names and their dates of birth, um, as well as their residential addresses that they report at the time of birth. Um, so this enables us to match siblings born to the same mother using her name and date of birth and other characteristics. Um, And then we're also able to merge the crime data to the mothers using their exact addresses. Um, So, and and as I mentioned, we have all kinds of information on pregnancy and birth outcomes. So we we generate all of our outcome measures using these data. Um, And then we have some demographic information on both the mothers and the fathers. And then finally, We have a data set on building characteristics from the NYC Department of City Planning. So these data are important because they allow us to figure out whether a mother's residence is in a single family home or in an apartment in a multifamily home or like a large apartment building in New York. Um, The reason that this is important is because the crime data where we have the exact longitude and latitude coordinates, we essentially know the building in which a crime occurred, but we wouldn't know the exact apartment number if the crime occurred in, say, a large apartment building. And so because we want to be able to link mothers to crimes that occur in their homes, specifically assaults that occur in their homes, our main analysis focuses on mothers residing in single-family homes, where we can be more sure that a reported assault actually occurred at their residence. Okay, so you use these data to identify women who experienced a violent assault while they were pregnant. Um, But of course, in order to measure the causal effect of that assault, you need a control group, women who look very similar, but who did not experience such an assault during pregnancy. Uh, This is not easy. (laughs) And you approach this issue in not one, but three different ways. So tell us about your three empirical strategies and what you see as the benefits of each one. 
Right, so um, as we discussed earlier, identification is a central challenge uh, for this project. So um, we do we use three different strategies. Each relies on a different set of assumptions. So, and each is gonna have, of course, its limitations, but we think that as a whole, they can paint a pretty convincing picture. So um, our first strategy is to compare women who experience an assault in their home during pregnancy to those who experience an assault in their home in the nine months following their expected due date. So importantly, we do not compare women who do and do not ever experience IPV. This is essentially what's done in the prior literature um, in most of the public health studies that I was mentioning. Instead, our strategy includes women who experience an assault in the months surrounding childbirth, and then we leverage variation in the exact timing of when this assault occurs relative to the child's expected due date. So then our design relies on an assumption that the time varying determinants of IPV during pregnancy and in the postpartum period are similar, which is actually um, quite consistent with the existing literature on this topic. But of course, we also do quite a lot of things to try to convince our readers that this assumption is likely to hold. So for instance, we show that the characteristics of parents across the two groups, so the group where the woman experiences an assault in her home during pregnancy and the group where the woman experiences an assault in the nine months after pregnancy. Um, those two groups are similar. Um, both in our administrative data, we have a lot of information on things like education level, age, uh, foreign-born status, um, marital status, um, but then we also use an additional survey data set called the Fragile Families and Child Wellbeing Survey, um, which oversamples sort of relatively low-income, disadvantaged families um, and has a lot more detailed information on a variety of family dynamics, including those related to IPV. Um, and we show again that those characteristics are similar in that data set as well. And then finally, we implement a bounding exercise um, that was proposed in a recent paper by Emily Oster uh, to show that our results from this empirical strategy hold up even when we account for reasonable degrees of bias due to potential selection on unobservable characteristics that we can't, uh, um, that we can't observe in either our administrative data or in the additional survey data. So then our second strategy is to build on the first design, but implement sort of a, a difference and difference type model, um, where essentially we compare the difference between mothers who experience an assault during pregnancy and those who have one in the months after pregnancy with the analogous difference for mothers who report any type of crime during those two time periods. So this strategy allows for there to be a difference in the reporting rate between women who experience an assault during pregnancy and those who experience an assault postpartum, which is a possible concern for our first strategy, but it assumes that this difference is similar to the difference in um, reporting rates for other types of crimes. And then the other thing is that this strategy allows us to shed light on the differential effects of assault during pregnancy relative to experiencing other types of crimes that are likely to be stressful, but may not involve direct physical harm to the woman, um, for instance, like burglaries. And then finally, our third strategy, um, is quite different. It compares uh, siblings born to the same mother um, where she experienced an assault during one pregnancy and not during the other. 
So by comparing children born to the same mother, this strategy essentially controls for all time invariant observable and unobservable uh, differences across women who do and do not experience IPV during pregnancy. So then the identifying assumption for the strategy is that time varying determinants of IPV within the same mother are uncorrelated with her children's birth outcomes. Now, of course, this assumption is inherently untestable, but we do have a nice placebo check at our disposal um, that provides us with a with an indirect test. So what we do is we take mothers who experience an assault in the months after pregnancy. We remove those who actually experience an assault during pregnancy, so like our main treatment group. Um, and then we estimate our same model with maternal fixed effects. So if there were some kind of time-varying shocks that determine both the timing of IPV in the months surrounding pregnancy and infant health, then we would potentially see placebo effects of exposure to assault after pregnancy on the birth outcomes of that same pregnancy. Um, but reassuringly, we find no evidence of that, suggesting that the identifying assumptions in the maternal fixed effects model um, are likely to hold. Yeah, I really like that last strategy and the, the placebo test, I agree, is, is really compelling. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, so you argue in the paper that the first two strategies, where you're essentially comparing outcomes for kids where the mother was assaulted before or after pregnancy, um, will be biased toward finding null effects. So talk us through that. Why should we expect those measured effects to be smaller than the true causal effect? Right. So um, in the first two strategies, remember the control group includes women who have a reported assault in the months after pregnancy. Um, but we know from a large sociological literature that domestic assaults where the police are called are rarely one-off events. So in most cases, there's a continuous pattern of abuse before, during, after pregnancy that may from time to time culminate in a more serious assault in which law enforcement actually gets involved. So it is likely that all of the women in our sample of analysis in this research design are likely to be in violent rela uh, relationships um, and therefore potentially subject to high levels of stress. So essentially, by comparing these two groups, our estimates allow us to capture the effect of the more serious assault itself, the one that leads to the police getting involved. But these models are ill-equipped to estimate the effects of the chronic stress uh, from being in a violent relationship, since again, both the treatment and control group in these strategies are likely exposed to such stress. So if we thought that in order to estimate a true causal effect of IPV, we would need to capture both the direct effect of the serious assault that gets law enforcement involved, as well as the associated chronic stress, then this means that our results from these two strategies are going to um, likely underestimated. But note that in our third strategy, where we compare siblings born to the same mother, that does not have this issue. So here, we essentially compare women who were subject to IPV during pregnancy to themselves at another point in time where they may have already left or even not yet entered the violent relationship. Um, so we should expect to find larger effect magnitudes when we use the maternal fixed effect strategy um, than when we use our first two strategies, and that's exactly uh, what we do. So you alluded earlier to um, trying to you know restrict your sample to, to really pinpoint the women who were assaulted in their home. Um, so tell us more about the sample restrictions that you make um, of using your, your full New York City data set um, and what the final sample looks like. And the question I have in the back of my mind here is how representative this group is when compared to all women who might experience IPV. 
Yeah, so that's an important question. So as mentioned before, um, the key restriction is that we focus on women who reside in single family homes um, because that's where we can be more sure that we actually measure an assault occurring in the woman's uh, residence. Um, and then we also limit our sample to women residing in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens boroughs of New York City. So we dropped Manhattan just because Manhattan has relatively few uh, single family homes and uh, out of those relatively very few women actually experience um, any assaults. Um, so there's just very few observations in Manhattan. Um, and then we also dropped Staten Island. It's also relatively small compared to the other boroughs. Um, and it just turns out that um, the demographic characteristics of mothers in Staten Island are much less comparable to those of women in the other boroughs. Um, and so we dropped them essentially to have a more homogeneous sample. Um, but of course, the cost of making these restrictions is that our sample becomes not less representative of the average woman who experiences um, IPV in the United States or even in New York City. Um, so for instance, women in single family homes are likely on average to have slightly higher income and just generally be more advantaged than women who reside in large apartment complexes in New York City. Um, so, so, you know, our estimates are going to be representative for the group of women that we have in our sample, um, but can't necessarily speak to what the effects would be for um, an average woman who's subject to IPV. Um, that said, we do um, a robustness check where we estimate our main regression models using a sample of women in multifamily homes, although we do still restrict it to kind of relatively small multifamily homes, um, just again, because we want to reduce the measurement error associated with assigning assault to occurring in the woman's residence. Um, our results are actually similar, but more muted, which is consistent with the idea that there's more measurement error when we use multifamily homes um, than when we use single family homes. You have a whole bunch of outcome measures that are potentially interesting here, uh, both the upside and downside of the rich data set you've constructed. So you combine those various measures into four outcome indices, a severe birth outcomes index, a broad birth outcomes index, a use of medical services index, and a maternal behavioral and well-being index. So walk us through this. Um, some folks out there might not have seen this done before. So first, tell us why you use these indices instead of just looking at the individual outcome measures. And second, what does each of these indices contain? Sure. Um, so the reason that we group our outcomes into outcome indices is to mitigate concerns about multiple hypothesis testing. So when you have lots of possible outcomes that you could analyze, then by chance you might detect that 5% of your models will yield a statistically significant coefficient. So this means that you might think you have estimated a true effect of exposure to assault during pregnancy, but really it's just because you ran so many regression models that you were bound to find something statistically significant in a few of them. Um, so in order to address this concern, which I think is a really important one, especially when you use large data sets that have a wealth of outcomes that you could look at, um, we create four outcome indices, as you mentioned, and this essentially just reduces substantially the number of regression models um, that we can run. So the indices are constructed in a fairly simple way. We essentially take each outcome 
Um, we orient it so that they all go in the same direction. So for instance, for the severe birth outcomes index, we orient things such as such that a higher value means a worse outcome, right? So like very low birth weight is one for very low birth and zero otherwise. Um, so a higher value means a worse outcome. Um, and then we standardize it by subtracting the control group mean and dividing by the control group standard deviation. And then we just take a simple average of all the standardized outcomes within each index group. Um, and so, as you said, we have four of these groups. So the severe birth outcomes index includes indicators for very very low birth weight, so that's less than 1,500 grams. Very preterm birth, so that's less than 34 weeks gestation. Low one-minute APGAR score, that's less than seven. An APGAR score is something that's given by the doctor, um, you know, one minute after birth. Um, NICU admission, so admission to the neonatal intensive care unit of the child. Um, an indicator for any abnormal conditions of the child that includes things like the use of assisted ventilation. Um, and an indicator for any congenital anomalies of the newborn. And then finally, an indicator of whether a death has occurred of the child by the time the birth certificate is filed uh, with, the, with the vital stats office. Um, our second index is the broad birth outcomes index. So this is going to include all of the variables I just mentioned within the severe birth outcomes index. And then we also include less severe measures. So continuous birth weight in grams, an indicator for low birth weight, that's less than 2,500 grams, gestation, continuous gestation in weeks, and an indicator for preterm births, so that's less than 37 weeks. Um, our use of medical services index includes an indicator for first trimester prenatal care initiation, the total total number of prenatal care visits, an indicator for induction of labor, an indicator for delivery by C-section, an indicator for any uh, complications during labor or delivery. And then finally, our maternal behavioral and well-being index includes indicators for a variety of kind of behavioral channels. So things like smoking during pregnancy, uh, using illicit drugs during pregnancy, the mother um, self-reporting being depressed, uh, having too low pregnancy weight gains, so that's less than 15 pounds, or too high pregnancy weight gains, so that's more than 40 pounds, and then an indicator for their mother not receiving uh, WIC benefits, which is the Women, Infants, and Children Supplemental Nutrition Program benefits. And that information on the mother and, and her behaviors, that's all on like birth certificate data? That's right. Yeah. So all of that information comes from the birth records data. It's amazing. Um, okay. So let's dive into the results. For each of your three empirical strategies, what do you find are the results of assault during pregnancy on your outcomes of interest? So all three of our strategies consistently demonstrate that experiencing assault during pregnancy has adverse effects on infant health. So first, let's focus on the relatively conservative estimates from the pregnancy versus postpartum assault exposure and the difference in difference models, which actually yield remarkably um, similar results. So there we find that mothers with assault during pregnancy have a 0.08 standard deviation higher summary index of severe birth outcomes, severe adverse birth outcomes, um, compared to mothers who report an assault in the postpartum period, as well as mothers who experience any other crime during either period. Um, so within this index, that result is driven by 1.5 and 2.1 percentage point um, 
higher rates of very low birth weight births and low uh, one-minute APGAR score births. Um, so these are actually quite large effects relative to the sample means, 61 and 46% increases in those outcomes. Um, we looked at uh, how the effects differ in terms of exposure across different trimesters of pregnancy and found that these impacts stem mainly from assault in the third trimester of pregnancy. And we also find um, that assaults in the third trimester of pregnancy are associated with a higher probability of an induction of labor, which we interpret as a medical response to injuries sustained by pregnant, pregnant victims of abuse. Um, and more generally, when we look at the medical services index, our results are less um, consistent for that one than they are for the birth outcomes. But we have some evidence that victims of assault during pregnancy are more likely to use medical services. And then when we look at the estimates from the maternal fixed effects model, where we compare siblings, um, those are even larger in terms of magnitudes, uh, which is what we expected. So here we find that assault during pregnancy leads to a 0.3 standard deviation higher summary index of severe birth outcomes and a 0.25 standard deviation higher summary index that includes the less severe birth outcome measures. And these impacts are driven by increased rates in very preterm births, low one-minute APGAR score as well as admission to the NICU. I found it really interesting that, at least for the first set of results, you find that women who are assaulted are more likely to use medical services. And you mentioned in the paper that that could mean you're actually biasing in the direction of of um, finding less severe impacts because women could be essentially mm -hmm. compensating for the assault right. in that way. Right. Um, it was something I wouldn't have wouldn't have thought about ahead of time. Yeah, that's right. So we, we find, for example, that women are more likely to get prenatal care earlier when they're assaulted during pregnancy, which, you know, we interpret as potentially the women are checking on their health of their pregnancy following the assault. So again, um, it's, it's sort of evidence of compensating behavior where the effect of the assault could be even larger if a woman didn't have access um, to that medical service. Right. Um, and so then you do a bit to figure out which mechanisms seem to be driving the effects, as you, you've already talked about a little bit. So more specifically, you're looking at, you're trying to figure out whether the results are the direct effect of the physical assault itself or the indirect effects of related stress and any coping mechanisms by the mother. So what do you test for there and what do you find? Right. So, you know, our uh, birth records data do allow us to look at a variety of these kind of behavioral channels, as we talked about. Um, so we looked at the behavioral index and we looked at the individual outcomes within there. So smoking cigarettes, illicit drug use, too low or too high weight gain, lack of WIC benefit received, self-reported depression. And we just find no evidence um, that assault during pregnancy affects any of these behaviors. As we mentioned, if anything, there's some evidence of compensating behaviors in terms of prenatal care. Um, so um, as a result, we think that the main channel driving the adverse effect of assault during pregnancy on infant health is the direct physical channel. So pregnant vi victims of assault may be more likely to go to the hospital because of the resulting physical trauma where they may need to have their labor induced uh, quite early, prematurely, and therefore deliver very preterm and very low birth weight babies that may, as a result, for instance, need to be admitted to the NICU. Um, you know, as I mentioned, our our main, our first two uh, 
regression model strategies are less equipped to identify the effects of sort of the chronic stress associated with violence in a violent relationship. So we're not saying that that type of stress is not there and that that's not an important channel. It's just that we don't have a very good way of capturing that with these estimates. Right. And I think your your third estimate, actually, because it's so much larger, suggests that stress probably is right. a big factor, that's right? That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So then you you do a bunch of robustness checks, um, as, as all these papers do, <laughs> to make sure you're isolating the effects of violent assaults um, and not just picking up underlying differences between the types of women who do and don't experience violence during pregnancy. So talk us through those checks and how you're able to convince yourselves that you've measured the causal effect of IPV. Right. Um, so we've already discussed some of the checks that we do. So for instance, as I mentioned, we show that a wide range of maternal and paternal characteristics are very similar across our treatment and comparison groups, right? Because the key sort of threat to us being able to estimate the causal effect is that somehow the types of women that experience assault during pregnancy are just systematically different from the types of women who experience an assault after pregnancy. At least this is a threat to our um, first two identification strategies. So, you know, like I said, we can look at all of the observable characteristics that we have in our administrative data and in the survey data. We don't find any evidence that those are different, but you might still worry that there's sort of unobservables out there that we just can't capture the data. So this is where we turn to this really nice bounding exercise um, that was proposed by Emily Oster in a recent paper um, that essentially allows us to do a calculation that assesses the degree of bias that is introduced if there is in fact any selection on unobservable characteristics. Um, so the basic idea behind this exercise is to calculate how large would that selection on unobservables have to be relative to any selection on observables in order to make the treatment effect that we estimate go away. So we do this calculation and we find that the selection on unobservables would have to be more than 1.3 times higher than selection on observables in order to completely explain away our effects. So we think that this is unlikely to hold for a couple of reasons. So first, we have a lot of observable characteristics in our data. So just the set of potential unobservable characteristics becomes relatively small. And we've also shown that there's no evidence of selection on observable characteristics. So it just seems quite unlikely that there would be this high degree of selection on unobservables. Um, and in Oster's paper, she herself proposes a threshold of one, which is that, you know, we worry about selection on unobservables if um, that selection is, you know, less than um, equal to selection on observables. So the ratio is less than one. We instead find a ratio of 1.3, um, which I think is quite uh, reassuring. All right. So then you use your results to estimate the total social costs of IPV, at least in terms of the negative effects on birth outcomes when the victim is a, is a pregnant woman. Um, so walk us through what you include in that calculation. Uh, so it's, that's a tough one to do and what you find. Right, right. So first, just the reason that we wanted to do this type of calculation is because it struck us that 
most of the estimates of the social cost of crime, which is like a huge literature trying to come up with these estimates because they're very important um, in any type of cost-benefit analysis that you do on policies related to crime or even policies not related to crime, like early childhood education that end up finding some sort of effect on crime, they rely on some estimate of what's the social cost of crime to do their own cost-benefit calculation. So these are really important numbers. Um, and in the existing literature, uh, these numbers are typically done through one of two ways. So one is um, kind of jury award estimates, um, which is basically based on actual cases um, and looking at how much juries award to various victims of crimes. Um, so it's obviously a relatively selected sample of, of who uh, is included in those estimates. Um, and then also things like hedonic uh, kind of pricing models, um, where all of these rely on the assumption that the full costs of the crime on the victims are fully known and observable either to the juries or people answering surveys about how much they're willing to pay to avoid crimes or are fully capitalized in things like housing prices. Um, so we think that this is unlikely to hold, especially because um, we have very few estimates of the effects of all kinds of different crimes, including, for instance, intimate partner violence, um, and especially on various uh, um, outcomes that people maybe haven't thought about in these social cost uh, literatures, such as birth outcomes. So we thought that including this number um, would be important uh, for this literature. Um, so what we do is we take our estimate of the effect of assault on very low birth weight births, and then we consider the best available evidence on the cost associated with having a very low birth weight child arising through six different channels. So first, very low birth weight children have higher rates of infant mortality. They have higher medical costs at and immediately following birth. They also have potentially increased rates of childhood disability, which itself entails cost. Um, and then there's... Um, research showing that uh, birth weight is correlated with adult income and, and, and medical well-being uh, in adulthood. So we think about uh, future decreases in adult income and increased medical costs associated with adult disability, as well as uh, reductions in life expectancy. So when we do this, we generate an average social cost of $36,857 per assault during pregnancy. And this is using our most conservative estimate of the effect of assault during pregnancy on the likelihood of very low birth weight. If we instead use the larger maternal fixed effect estimate, we actually get an average social cost of $85,999. And then with an average of 3,177 pregnant women between 2004 and 2012 in New York City who suffered from physical abuse uh, based on available data, our estimates imply that the total social costs that were previously unaccounted for in New York City, just New York City alone, are somewhere between 117 to $273 million per year. And then if you aggregate this um, under some assumptions of the rate of uh, abuse during pregnancy for the entire United States, you get an annual social cost of around $3.8 to $8.8 billion. Um, and this is, again, under the assumption of the best available nationwide victimization estimate for pregnant women, as well as the fact that there are approximately 3.9 million births per year.
And I want to emphasize that after we do all of these calculations, these numbers likely completely underestimate the full social cost of assault on pregnant women for at least five reasons. So first, we have measurement error in our crime data, um, and that's just because you know not all assaults get reported to the police. So we're only picking up the effects of those that do get reported. We don't know anything about assaults that are not reported to the police. Um, uh, and this is related to also underreporting of IPV to the police more generally. I should say also the measurement error in our crime data also stems from the fact, again, that we um, we have to uh, assume that an assault occurring in the home of a woman actually affects the woman herself. Um, and then we also, of course, do not measure the effects of the assault on the mother's own well-being. So everything that we've done so far relates to the costs associated with her unborn child's well-being, but the mother herself could be affected in fact, there's really great research um, showing that women who are uh, victims of crimes experience, for instance, reduced labor market earnings in the years following the crime. Um, there's also, as we discussed, potential compensatory responses on the part of the mothers that could reduce the damage to the fetus from the assault that should be taken into account. Um, and then, as we are so already discussed, that women subject to IPV are likely to be living with high levels of stress, um, which in itself is also known to affect fetal development. So all taken together, we think that we have a decent estimate of the social cost of um, physical assault during pregnancy based on the health of the infant, but we really underestimated uh, for the reasons I just mentioned. And, you know, full cost calculation should really take into account also the well-being of the mother herself. It really highlights how uh, complicated these cost-benefit analyses are. <laughs> right. Uh, students Absolutely. always, always give, uh, when I'm reading these papers in class, students always give the authors a hard time for saying back of the envelope uh, cost-benefit analysis <laughs> in the, in the discussion. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, let's be, it has to be back of the envelope because it, they really are so complicated. Um, yeah, we do love that phrase. Okay. So you released this research as a working paper earlier this year. So has any other research come out? since then that is relevant to this research topic that we should talk about? Yeah. So, I mean, I just mentioned actually in, in the discussion of the social cost. So there's a really interesting recent working paper by Anna Bindler and Nadine Cattell. Um, so what they do is they use Dutch administrative data um, that is unique in that it links victims of various crimes to their labor market outcomes. Um, and they use a really nice event study design where they essentially find that victims of crimes, and especially victims of domestic violence, experience large earnings losses and increases in public benefit receipt that last up to eight years following the crime. So I think these findings are really important because they really complement the evidence that we're showing for infant health. And they suggest that in order for us to approach some estimate of the full cost of IPV during pregnancy, which, as you mentioned, is very hard to do, we would at the very least have to add all of these costs together um, to try to get a sense of both the cost to the mothers and the infants themselves. So putting it all together, the results of this study and the other studies we've talked about, what are the policy implications of this work? 
Yeah, so I think that our results, as well as those from the other studies, um, have important implications for thinking about persistence and inequality, which is where we started this discussion earlier. Um, so poor pregnant women are much more likely to be victims of assault than their more advantaged counterparts. And the majority of all violence against women is perpetrated by domestic partners. So our results suggest that intra-family conflict um, might be an important and previously understudied mechanism through which early life health disparities perpetuate persistent economic inequality across generations. So more practically, you know, interventions that reduce violence against pregnant women, and there's a number of these out there, um, you know, of course, that have varying degrees of effectiveness, but to the extent that they have meaningful consequences for the women and their partners, potentially, um, they, our results imply that they could actually have benefits for the next generation and just the broader society as a whole. And what's the research frontier here? What are the next big open questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about in the years ahead? Right. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done on the topic of domestic violence and economics. So to any students that are out there listening to this that are looking for research ideas, I really think that this is an area that's understudied um, within the economics field, um, and in particular when it comes to understanding the effects of domestic violence on the victims. So there's you know, some studies that think about bargaining intra-household models and think about the determinants of domestic violence, but there's really quite a bit less on the effects of the violence itself. Um, so for instance, as we already mentioned, we have very little evidence on the causal effects of intimate partner violence on the mother's well-being, so kind of rigorous causal evidence on their mental health, their physical health, their labor market trajectories, their future family formation. Um, also, you know, we have shown that uh, prenatal exposure to IPV has large adverse effects on infant health. But, you know, do these effects translate into later childhood development? Um, do these effects persist into adulthood as um, other early childhood shocks have been shown to? These are still outstanding questions that we don't have answers to. Um, so I think they're all very fruitful areas for future research. Yeah. And I'll add to that. And you know, we also know very little about just policies, what interventions we could uh, we could put in place to try to mitigate some of those, those Absolutely. costs. That's right. Yeah. So I think there's a variety of interventions out there, but a lot of the research uses fairly small samples, sort of isolated case studies, and really having a more comprehensive evidence base where we can think about what works and what doesn't in this area, I think is would be really valuable. My guest today has been Maya Rosenslater from Stanford University. Maya, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoy the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is Carolyn Hockenberry with production assistance from Elizabeth Pancotti. Our music is by Werner, and our logo is designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in two weeks.